What's going on, everybody? My name is Jordan. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. Happy New Year from Renaissance. Yes, very grateful to be with you guys. I'm honored that you guys are kicking off your year with us uh, here at Renaissance. Hey, about eight years ago, right around this time of the year, uh, I was uh, doing a campaign in honor of my late wife. Uh, she had just passed away from a pretty rare uh, cancer. And uh, to honor her life, we did something called, uh, a campaign with something called Charity Water. Now, Charity Water does exactly what their name suggests. Uh, they are a charity that gives water. You guys are very smart. Um, uh, doing that campaign actually changed the way that I, I see water. Uh, I did a lot of research when we were doing the campaign, and I'd heard about them from a friend. And I was blown away by some of the statistics about water to this day. Um, diseases from dirty water kill more people every year than all forms of violence, including war. 43% of those deaths are children under five years old. And access to clean water and ba basic sanitation could save about 16,000 lives every week. Now, one of the things that I was thinking about when we were doing the campaign, uh, I'd heard about the organization when my late wife was sick and you know, we had tried everything we could, uh, specialist after specialist, surgeries, all these different things. And one thing I kept on thinking about was, like, what if it was just water that she needed? Like, what if it wasn't anything fancy? It wasn't some new, you know, study that Sloan Kettering was doing. What if it was just water? Like, what length would I go to to get her water? Now, doing that campaign changed the way that I think about water because water for so many people in the world today, uh, it doesn't mean what it means to us in 2020 New York City. We got the greatest tap water on the planet. <laughs> Uh, if, you, if you're bougie, you drink Fiji, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but water, to a lot of people around the world, equals life. Now, the biblical world also uh, was very similar in that water as a symbol didn't mean something that you would just do, you know, when you get a little thirsty. Water meant life. All throughout the Old Testament, the concept and the image of water is synonymous with life. Where you had it, you had life. If you did not have water... No matter what else you had, there was death. Now, certainly in Jesus' day, water was a symbol of life. Uh, now, in the scripture that Christy just read, it's really important to take note of this because Jesus is, Jesus is talking to a woman at this well, and uh, he's talking to her about this concept of water. And what he's offering her is not just a sip of something to drink. What he's offering her is is life. Now, I want to reread a couple of verses just to make sure that we're all on the same page. Uh, Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at a well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who was saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, 
as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Now, this is one of the most important interactions that Jesus has with someone in the entire Bible because it explains the true nature of what it means to be in relationship with Jesus and what it means to experience transformation from him. Remember, water is life. And when Jesus talks about water, uh, it's a great way for us to understand how to cultivate and how to create uh, our spiritual lives. Now, this scripture comes for us at a perfect time. For the last couple of months, we've been in the Gospel of John, and as fate would have it, today we've stumbled on this scripture right at the new year. In the new year, uh, it tends to be a time where we have a lot of goals, right? This is the year you're going to lose them five pounds, you're going to get your teeth straightened, you're gonna, you know what I'm saying? This is going to be the year you finish your degree. I did Smile Direct, so no shade to that, y'all. I can give you a discount, too. Holler at me for for my code, I get, you know, get a little kickback. Uh, you know, you want to finish your degree, you want to get that raise, uh, you want to kick your roommate out, you want to do whatever it is that you want to do. Uh, this is a year, this is the time of the year where we think about our goals, and I'm assuming that you're here today because you also have spiritual goals. Uh, there was a round of applause for our Bible tool belt class because you want to read the Bible more this year. And a lot of you, I'm sure that you've come in here today because you want to follow Jesus more faithfully and fully in 2020. Now, the scripture that we're looking at today is perfect timing for us because it lets us know the true nature of transformation. Having goals is fantastic. Discipline is a really good thing. However, if what you reduce Christianity to is just another set of goals, another list to accomplish, you're going to drastically miss out on the life of God that God wants you to have And you're going to miss out on what Jesus has come to do in your life absolutely uh, and totally. What we see here is that uh, the goals that we have in in our life, our spiritual goals, it's not just more discipline and a better plan. Now, three things we see in the scripture. The first is what is being offered by by Jesus. Now, I am all for practical tips and um, practical ways that we can improve our relationship with God. And we're going to get to some of those at the end of today's message. But we have to be very careful to not reduce Christianity to a list of things to do. Now, here's what we see happening in the scripture. Uh, Most of us, what we think about is that once upon a time, especially if you're a Christian, once upon a time, you realized and you knew you couldn't do it on your own. You knew you needed Jesus, not just as an example, but you knew that you needed a savior. But then something subtle and dangerous creeps into all of our lives. Eventually, this dependence and reliance somehow turns into it's all up to you. Once upon a time, it was up to God, but now it's it's all up to you. Essentially, we approach Jesus, instead of asking him for living water, we just want a better bucket so we can do it on our own. Now, instead of having a one-gallon bucket, now Jesus will give us a 10-gallon bucket. And this bucket that Jesus gives us is going to have better handles, and thanks a lot, Jesus. Thanks for your, your help to us. I got it from here. Now, the danger in our spiritual lives is that we would put the cart in front of the horse and we would reduce Jesus to someone who gives us just a better bucket. But here's the dope thing about it. Jesus doesn't even carry buckets. In John 4, 11, this woman says something that's so poignant. She says, sir, the woman said, you don't even have a bucket. 
Jesus is not offering you a better bucket so you can do it yourself. He's offering us something way better, much more profound, much more thorough, much more transformative in our lives. He's offering us living water. Now, we're fortunate that we get to see the entirety of the Gospel of John, and uh, we can jump forward a couple chapters to see what is it that Jesus is talking about when he mentions the phrase living water. What specifically is he talking about? Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. Uh, John 7, 37, it says, On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the spirit. Now, we don't have to guess what Jesus was talking about when we see this phrase, living water. He said this about the spirit. He's talking about God's spirit, the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the spirit, for the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, in the scripture in John 4, what Jesus is offering this woman and what Jesus offers to me and to you is the Holy Spirit. One of the areas that we need to truly rethink the way we approach is in our lack of reliance on the Holy Spirit. If there's anything that should shape our prayers, should shape our goals, it should be to drastically change the way that we relate to God's power living in our lives right now through the Holy Spirit. Most of us in our life, if we're being completely honest, we just want Jesus to help us be a little bit better on our own. And in doing so, we miss out so much on what God truly offers us, the real power and the real source of what Jesus is offering. Now, here's a crazy thought experiment. If you were to find someone who grew up on a deserted island, who had never been to any church in America, uh, and you passed them a New Testament, and then you interviewed them, uh, they would never assume that Christians for a millisecond could survive, could grow, could thrive without the Holy Spirit's activity rampant in their lives. The beginning of the Bible through, I mean, the beginning of the New Testament through Revelation, all you see is the acts and the activity of the Holy Spirit transforming people, making people alive, making people uh, mature who were immature, taking them from death to life. From Acts 1, Jesus tells his disciples, hey, listen, you are going to go to Jerusalem, and when you get there, it's going to be lit, but don't go anywhere until you get the Holy Spirit. All of the teaching that Jesus had given them, all of the equipping that he had given them was insufficient. He says, don't go nowhere until the Holy Spirit's power has been received by you. And then in Acts 2, you see this guy named Peter, who was very previously a failure, 50 days before uh, Pentecost, Peter had denied Jesus three times. He was a failure and he ran away. 50 days later, fast forward the tape, he stands up in front of thousands of people and preaches and thousands of people come that day to become Christians, all because of this one dude sermon. Is it because Peter was such a profound speaker? It says that they were pricked to their hearts and they said, what, what do we need to do to be saved? It talks about the acts of the Holy Spirit sweeping through this early Christian community. People's lives were being changed, radically transformed, and it wasn't because they had better planning techniques. Now, I'm a big fan of planning. Um, I have a daily planner that I use for my, for my goals, uh, and I think it's a really good tool. Planning, being intentional about your life, it's good. 
But the power that God wants in your life is not in the planning book. It's not in you becoming a little bit more disciplined. It's God's power coursing through your veins on a daily basis and us being drastically reliant on that power to move us. Not being reliant on ourselves, but being reliant on God, the living water that is flowing through our veins. And this is what Jesus is offering to us. Uh, In John 16 and 7, Jesus tells his disciples, nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It's for your benefit that I'm going away. So this is Jesus talking to his disciples, and he's telling them that he's going to leave. And he says, it's for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the counselor, which is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. This is a crazy statement that Jesus makes. Jesus says, the Holy Spirit inside of you is better than me next to you. Now, we got community groups rolling out for the spring. Uh, If we were to announce, like, hey, we got this new community group headed up by this guy. His name is Jesus. Uh, Let me know if you want to be in Jesus' community group. Most of us would sign up for that in a millisecond, and it wouldn't matter if that group was meeting Wednesday morning at 4.30 a.m. You would be there. Here's what Jesus says. The Holy Spirit inside of you is better. It's for your benefit that I go away, Jesus says. It's for your benefit. The Holy Spirit and the living water flowing inside of you is better than me next to you, giving you all the counsel that I can give you. Man, how tragic would it be? How tragic would it be if we reduced our goals and our life and our life with Jesus to just us having a little bit more discipline in 2020? And if we neglected the Holy Spirit and the power that is available to us, now, if you're like me, um, you miss out on this on a daily basis at times. Uh, the Apostle Paul picks up on this reminder, and this is uh, the exclamation point where Paul says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. Uh, what I hope is that we would develop a passion and a reliance and a hope and an expectation that we would expect our lives to look, to be able to look radically different, not because of us, but because of God's spirit, which is available to us. Think about the power that is required to raise someone from the dead. Think about the power that is required to raise someone from the dead. Paul says, Jesus says, that power is living inside of everyone who has placed their faith in Christ. God has given us this as a gift. Now, here's what's so crazy about the Holy Spirit and our our need for him, you'll never really make true spiritual progress without the Holy Spirit. You might set the alarm, you might have better willpower, but Jesus is not about you having better buckets. He's about a brand new life altogether. A few years ago when I was, um, uh, when we were dealing with my late wife's cancer, I read a book called The Emperor of Maladies. And it was written by an oncologist, a cancer specialist, and he talked about the nature of cancer, and it struck me with some deep spiritual truths. And he was talking about cancer, saying, part of the reason that cancer is so difficult and that we don't have a cure right now for cancer is because it's not like a a bacteria or a virus where you're trying to kill an external intruder. You're trying to kill human cells. And like, how are you going to beat you? Cancer is just as human as a heart is. How are you going to beat you? Spiritually, the same thing is true. If what we're we're relying on is us to beat us, 
we're never going to make any real progress. At the root of every horrendous decision that has ever been made in your life, every lack of discipline, every morning headache when you were like, girl, I don't know what I was thinking last night. You know who the common denominator is? You. How are you going to beat you? With just a little bit more discipline? With just a little bit more effort? By signing up for a community group? Those things are helpful. Don't get me wrong. What God is offering to us is not a better bucket. It's not a bigger bucket. He's offering us life, his spirit. And the tragic sin of the American church is our tragic neglect of the Holy Spirit and his, the power available to us in our life. Uh, now, this is also important because unless we remember God's power in our life, all we're going to do is dwell on our inability. Unless you remember God's power and presence in your life, the only thing you will dwell on and focus on is your own inability. Uh, you'll know that you do this if in your prayer life, it basically starts out with a laundry list of things that, God, I'm sorry for this, and I'm, Lord, Lord knows I shouldn't have done that, and I, you know, Lord, I'm, you know, forgive me for not doing this. And again, confession is a good thing. But if that dominates your prayer life and you don't remember God's power, all you're going to do is dwell on your own inability. And that is not the life that Jesus is offering to us. What God offers to us is a power that cannot be conquered even by you and your own inabilities. A power that will bring life to your mortal bodies, even though you have a long list of failures and um, insufficient behavior. A pastor friend of mine told this story, and it's one of the better examples that I know of, of how the Holy Spirit works in our life, even in times when we're not exactly doing the greatest job inviting him into our spiritual transformation and development. And uh, he told a story about him buying a house, and uh, real estate agents always leave a couple of details out. Uh, no shade to real estate agents. There can be an apartment that has police tape around it from a murder that just took place. And they'll be like, it's an up-and-coming neighborhood. Uh, uh, in their case, they left out a, a pretty big detail that there was a river that was running beneath their apartment. And they bought, they bought this apartment, and they loved it at first. Uh, they bought this house, rather, and they loved it at first. And they started to notice that it didn't matter what season it was, but like the basement was just like always mildewy. It was just always damp in, in the basement. And when it would rain, it would like start to flood in the basement. And they didn't know where the water was coming from. And uh, eventually, they met with one of their neighbors years later. And they said, and the neighbors who had lived there for a long time uh, said, oh, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a river that runs next to that mountain. And it runs underneath your house. And there's a, a, a waterbed underneath your house. So that basically, no matter what happens, there's always going to be water in your home, even if it was a drought, no matter what was going on. And here's one thing that they realized. Even if you pour cement, dirt, a foundation, if you, put, if you build a house on top of it, the river that runs beneath it will always show itself. You can't conquer it. You can't diminish it. What Jesus is talking about when he's talking to this woman with this living water, this spring. So this is what Jesus says in John 4 and 14. He says, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up for eternal, in him for eternal life. This is not just a still water collection, a well that you can just shovel some dirt over. This is a living, flowing spring. 
and you can shovel as much dirt on it as you want to, eventually it's going to continue to show itself and erode everything else uh, in its way. Uh, the Grand Canyon is a phenomenal example that water always wins. What Jesus is saying is this. Some of you have thrown a lot of dirt in your life, thrown a lot of dirt in your heart, a lot of terrible decisions that you've made, and you question whether or not you can have a vital, transformative spiritual life. The answer is yes, because you can't cover up a spring. You can't conquer a spring with dirt, with cement, with anything else. And this is what Jesus is offering to us. He's offering us life, a life that will bring life to our mortal bodies, a life that's so powerful that it was the same one that raised Jesus from the dead. And how tragic would it be if we neglected that and we just wanted a, better, a couple of better tips on how to grow in 2020? Now, all of the dirt of our bad decisions, our laziness, our lack of discipline is not more powerful than the river of God running inside of you. And if that's not good news, I don't know what is. Uh, the second thing we see in the scripture is who this offer is being made to. And this shows us what the nature of real life-giving Christianity is. And it really shows us what the gospel is, right? So what Jesus offers us, these are not rewards for the godly. These are gifts to the broken. These are not rewards to the godly. These are gifts to the broken. And most of us approach God that on this reward system, on this merit-based system, that we feel horrendous when we don't, do, we don't live up to the standard and we feel better about ourselves when we're doing better than other people. And we miss out on the gospel message completely. And Jesus's, Jesus's interaction with this woman shows us what the gospel truly and fully is. Uh, so let's turn back to John 4 real quick and see who Jesus is making this offer to and, and shine some light on the gospel for us. Uh, it starts in verse 9. It says, uh, verse 7 rather, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her. Because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Go, call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Then the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Now, here's a couple things we see about their encounter. First, a holy man like Jesus, a teacher, a rabbi, would have had nothing to do with a random woman from Samaria. And a lot of times people read the scripture and they miss out on the true meaning of what it is. All right, so it's a good thing that Jesus did not subscribe to oppressive societal norms. But this scripture is about way more than Jesus being woke. This scripture is about Jesus coming to people who have no business being near him. Have you ever done something that made you feel like God has no business being near me? That I got to clean myself up a little bit before I come closer to God? Now, what this shows us is the nature of, of God. The, the most important question you'll ever answer in reading the Bible is this. What is God like? The Bible tells us that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. So if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. What is Jesus like? What is God like? God is like someone who comes, who pursues, who makes the first step, who goes after someone who, he has, who has no business being near someone like him. And that's real hope for us. 
That's real hope because it means that you don't have to measure up for God to come, for you to be in relationship with God. The second thing it shows us about the nature of uh, the gospel is this woman very likely had bad character. So it's one thing for it just to be a random woman, but this specific woman certainly had uh, bad character. And you see Jesus questioning her very messy relationship life. He says, you know, where's your husband? She says, I don't have one. He's like, oh, you definitely don't. Uh, you've had five. I've seen your Instagram. And um, <laughs> needless to say, she had, at the very uh, least, made some questionable relationship decisions. One thing that a lot of commentaries note is that the, the reason she came to the well at noon was because she probably wanted to avoid the rest of the women who would have gone to the well earlier in the morning. So before the sun was out blazing uh, at around 7 or 8 a.m., most women would go to the well to collect water for the day. And people wouldn't go multiple times for the day. They would just go once in the morning, and that would be it for the day. If they needed to go back, they would go back in the evening. Most scholars note that the reason she went at noon is because that was the least likely time for anyone else to be there. She probably had a reputation for having done a lot of things, and her bad character was probably well-deserved. This is not someone who was probably falsely accused. This is someone who had made uh, her own terrible set of personal decisions. And Jesus confronts her, and we can only infer that Jesus is not turned off by the real you. Jesus is not the type of God who is af afraid or offended by the real you, the version that you don't want to display for all to see. The third thing we see in the scripture is that she, uh, she's a Samaritan, and Jews weren't supposed to speak to Samaritans. Um, and it's not because they like, looked down on them because they were like from Staten Island. It's not just that. <laughs> Jews and Samaritans had centuries and decades long of wars, of conflicts. And um, one of the best ways that I've, I've understood this text is that there was like a, even though they were kind of cut from the same cloth ethnically, there was this tribal hatred that had been developing because of all these wars and conflicts and deaths that happened. And uh, a couple years ago, I went to Ireland and, um, for, a, for a quick trip. And one of the stops we made was in Belfast in the north of Ireland. And if you know anything about the history of Northern Ireland, you know the, the decades-long conflict between the Protestants and the Catholics. They hate each other. Like, they legitimately hate each other. Going to Ireland, in some ways, helped me heal from a lot of racial traumas that I've had in America because I started to see that real hatred doesn't always revolve around skin color. We were hanging out with um, a guide, a tour guide, and he was showing us different monuments of, and this is a place where 48 school children were gunned down by machine guns by the Protestants. And this is where the Catholics bombed a bus and killed 118 people and monument after monument all throughout the city of Belfast, you see all of these places being erected. And it's crazy, in the city of Belfast, there is this giant wall that separates the Catholics from the Protestants. They have nothing to do with each other. When this woman tells Jesus, why are you speaking to me? For Jews and, for Jews and Samaritans don't have any dealings. It's very similar to the to the, the, in Northern Ireland, to the Protestants and the Catholics years ago during their conflict, they really had so much bad blood. Now, what does it show us about the nature of God? It means that God's pursuit of you isn't to get you back, but it's to win you back. That God comes after the real you, and he's not coming after you with a vengeance, but 
to, to win you back. In John 3.17, it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. And the last thing we see about this woman is that she leaves her jar behind. So in verse 28, uh, she leaves her, her jar behind. The very thing that she brought to the well to do, to fill her jar, she leaves it behind. Now, what does this interaction with the woman show us about the nature of the gospel? It shows us that God pursues you first. God knows the real you. God's pursuit of you isn't to get you back, but to win you back. And that it causes you to go all in. The interactions that you and I have with Jesus should cause us to leave something behind and to pick up something new going into the future. One of the ways that I've seen this happen in my life and certainly in the life of so many people around Renaissance and all Christians all over the world is to go all in, to make a public declaration of your faith that no longer are you going to sit on the sidelines and um, kind of evaluate whether or not Jesus is for you, but you're going to go all in. Your heart has now been pierced and convicted. This is what we see happening in Acts 2, and they want to know, what do we need to do? And they say, repent. Everybody be baptized. Make a public declaration of what God has done in your life privately. Now, next Sunday at Renaissance, we're having our uh, baptism service. And I know there's so many people at Renaissance who have been around, maybe you've been around church for decades, and you have a, a couple of excuses why you probably wouldn't do it. But here's what I would love for you to consider. Has the gospel captured your heart in such a way, if this is you, that you're ready to go all in? If that's you, my brother Kevin will be up at uh, front in the at the end of service to talk to you about what that looks like and answer any questions. Or you can go on our website, right? Check that out, brand new website, and fill out the, the baptism form. And we would love to talk to you and, and talk to you about any questions that you have. But the gospel should call us to go all in uh, towards Jesus. The last thing we see in the scripture is how do we access this power in our life? How do we like really access this power that we've been talking about in our life? Well, the first thing is that we need to do is a little unconventional. The first thing we need to do is we need to embrace our inability. You need to embrace the fact that you can't do it on your own. So the first thing is to embrace your inability. Too many of us can't see the power of God in our lives because we're too busy trying to be strong on our own. Uh, how do you try to be strong on your own? One is one really great sign is that you'll never confess your struggles until two years after they're done. So community group confession time is, yeah, you know, yeah, I struggled with that in 2012. Uh, but the current you, the real you, you're just trying to be strong on your own. You don't go seek help from anyone because you're trying to be strong on our own. Uh, my son is four and a half now, and if you've been around a four-year-old, you know that they want to do everything for themselves. Uh, my son just pretends like he knows how to do everything, and um, we were in the kitchen last month. I was making him a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with uh, creamy peanut butter, not crunchy. Crunchy is for serial killers. And <laughs> he, we had the peanut butter and jelly on the counter, and, you know, if you, the jelly at your house is like the jelly at my house. There's like that ring of crust of jelly that makes it impossible. A gorilla can barely open the, the jar of jelly. And my son was like, I got it, I got it. And I was like, go for it. 30 minutes later, after he had <laughs> tried and failed and passed out on the floor, he, uh, uh, you know, raised his arm in defeat to pass me the jelly and say, Daddy, can you please open uh, uh, the jelly? 
And he wasn't able to experience what I had for him until he first embraced his inability to do it. Biblical authors have long since said this over and over and over again, that the first step for us to experience God's power is to first embrace our inability. The Apostle Paul, a man who wrote so much of the New Testament, he says it like this in 2 Corinthians 12, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ, for when I am weak, then I am strong. I will boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. We need to embrace our inabilities. A couple years ago, I realized that my prayer life was really suffering and I just wasn't praying nearly uh, enough. Um, and I started praying this one prayer, God, help me to want to pray because I don't really want to pray. And that's evidenced by me watching ESPN every morning. But I don't, I don't really desire. I don't have a desire, a passion. I don't have motivation to want to pray. I pray a couple times a week, but I, I don't have one of those prayer lives that you would just be, you know, that someone's going to write a book about that you, know, you pray for hours and you just feel so connected. I just didn't feel that. I said, God, help me to want to pray. And that simple prayer helped kickstart uh, a deeper and more thriving relationship with God. And it starts with first us embracing our inability and inviting Jesus in to be our savior, not just our teacher. Uh, another way that we um, really experience God's power in our life, so we embrace our inabilities, and secondly, I talked about us getting to the practical stuff that we can do. We need to submit ourselves to the daily disciplines that lead to life with God. Here's what I know to be true. Whatever we offer ourselves to will consume us. I've been a Christian for about really following Jesus hard for like 20 years. I have never, ever, ever seen someone grow in their faith with Jesus apart from Scripture. I've never seen it happen. I've seen a lot of people struggle, uh, but I've never seen someone truly grow and mature and thrive in their relationship with Jesus uh, apart from Scripture. And part of the reason we're, um, we're doing a tool belt class is so that we can inspire people and help give you the tools on how to engage the Bible more faithfully and more, more fully. And part of the tool belt class will be specifically for people who are starting with one-on-one, and some people will get to some stuff that's more advanced as well. And I would love it for you this year to learn more tools, uh, how to allow God to form your life. Uh, there's an author by the name of H.B. Charles, a, a preacher and an author, and he says it like this. He says, it is the will of God to have the spirit of God, use the word of God to make the children of God look like the son of God. It's God's will in your life to use his word and let the spirit apply it to your life to make you and I look more and more like Jesus, because whatever we offer ourselves to will consume us. It will change us. It will happen gradually, but it will happen in our lives. This is probably best um, seen in uh, what was you know, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, series on television, television history, Breaking Bad. Um, yes, there we go. You can clap for Breaking Bad. Um, and I'm going to give kind of a spoiler, not a super spoiler. If you haven't seen it by now, it's your fault. 
Um, but it starts out with this guy named Walter White, and he's just this nerdy science teacher. In season one, he just kind of stumbles into, you know, making drugs in his garage. By season five, he morphs into a completely different person. No longer is he some nerdy dude afraid to hold a gun. He has been consumed by all the things that he had given himself to. Eventually, this dude is the OG for real. That he has completely changed as a person. Here's what I know to be true. Good or bad, whatever you give yourself to will consume you. I've seen this happen for people in fitness, that they've given themselves to fitness and it consumes them. Before you know it, that's all they talk about. That's all they think about. That's all they're doing in their life. Whatever you give yourself to, good or bad, it will consume you. Now, that same truth is applicable for how God wants to use uh, scripture to shape and to mold your life, and the Holy Spirit would use, would use uh, scripture to apply it to your life, that you would see fresh new life happening, that you would see real, deep, transformative change. So if you haven't signed up for that tool belt class, please sign up for it. The registrations are running out, um, and we would love for you guys to be in there so that we can learn how to read the Bible more faithfully and fully, so that we can access and experience the transformative hope that God is offering us in and through his spirit. Let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for your life and your, that you offer to us. Lord, I pray that you would convict us of all the times that we are relying on ourselves. And I pray that you would lead us to, to life. Life in you that uh, can't be stamped out. Life in you that is real, and that's transformative. God, help us to have living water coursing through our veins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.